Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mindful Social. This week, my guest is Mike Robbins. He's the author of several books, including his latest, Bring Your Whole Self to Work, How Vulnerability Unlocks Creativity, Connection, and Performance. He's an expert in leadership, teamwork, emotional intelligence, and he works with a wide range of clients, including Google, Wells Fargo, the IRS, Charles Schwab, a whole bunch of other ones. I really enjoyed this book, and I I can't recommend it enough. There'll be a link on the website, but uh, welcome, Mike, and thank you for sharing your book with us. Oh, Janet, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks for reading the book and having me on your podcast. I'm happy to be here. Oh, great. Well, you know, it was a lot of fun, and, and I kind of want to dive right into it because, you know, I, I like the title, and I noticed that in the book you quote Sheryl Sandberg, yeah. that before her husband died, she believed in bringing her whole self to work, but afterwards, she had no choice. Yeah. So let's talk about what that means. Yeah, well, Cheryl's story, and, and her she wrote a great book called Option mm-hmm. B after her husband passed away very suddenly. Uh, and it really, I read that book actually as I was writing Bring Your Whole Self to Work. And, you know, I, I share a bit about this in the introduction. My sister Lori passed away from cancer at the beginning of 2016, about a month after I'd agreed with my publisher to write this book. Um, and then I ended up delaying working on it and writing it for a number of months until I was emotionally ready. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, the book isn't specifically about grief per se, but I think for any of us who've gone through something significant, like a loss of someone really close, um, you know, when we're going through something like that, as Cheryl alluded to, you really can't hide it, right. you know? And, and so it's like, you, you, it sort of comes with you everywhere you go. And part of what I've been really focused on in my own life and in my work over the last 17 years as a consultant and as a speaker and, you know, an author in the work that I do inside of organizations is how do you create environments inside of companies, big or small, whatever type of business it is, where people can bring all of who they are, not simply just the grief and the loss and the sadness and the pain, which is part of life, but everything else too, because, you know, as Brene Brown likes to talk about, we can't selectively mute emotions. So if we Mm -hmm. say, okay, you're allowed to be excited and happy and maybe a little angry and stressed out, but those are the only emotions we bring to this job. (laughs) Then like, what do we do with all the rest of them? And, you know, if we, if we mute our sadness, we mute our grief, it also ends up muting our joy and our love and our gratitude and all the other good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and I also think, you know, if you, are trying to mute that, it's going to come out in ways that you really didn't expect. Absolutely. I mean, and we all see this just even in small ways, you know, it's like we go to work or just life is stressful or things are happening. And then like someone cuts us off on the freeway and we flip out or we get home with our family and our children and the people that we love and care about the most. And we've sort of been keeping it all together and then we blow up at them. And, um, you know, so again, I mean, it's just, it's part of life and, and, you know, being mindful whether it's, you know, in social media or in marketing, in business, in life in general, mindfulness is really about paying attention to ourselves, noticing what's going on. And then hopefully as we, you know, move into the realm of emotional intelligence, kind of having some ability to manage that, (laughs) although Mm -hmm. sometimes it's easier said than done, right? Well, you know, we're talking about emotional intelligence, but we haven't really defined it. So why don't you give us kind of a loose idea of what emotional intelligence is and then take that into the workplace and how it applies. Well, you know, it's interesting. I actually did some additional research. I mean, I'd been talking about emotional intelligence for a number of years, but as I looked into it, I was just fascinated through where did it come from? And it turns out there were actually 
couple of professors at Yale in 1990 that did a big study and sort of coined the phrase. Then nobody really heard of it for a few years until Daniel Goleman wrote a book called Emotional Intelligence five years later that came out that sort of popularized the phrase. And his work then evolved over the next few years. He's a psychologist and had been around actually studying. I just saw Daniel a few months ago, actually, at an event and got a chance to meet him. And he'd been studying mindfulness and meditation for years, among many other things. Mm. But Daniel then wrote a, a seminal piece in the Harvard Business Review in 1998, where he shared a couple years worth of research he'd done with businesses, with companies on studying emotional intelligence in the workplace. And basically, based on Goldman's research, and there's been a ton of research and literature in the last 20 years since then, but he essentially broke it down into this notion that there's two type, two parts to emotional intelligence, if you will, and then sort of two aspects within each part. So there's the self part. So there's self-awareness and self-management, right? So mindfulness, a big part of, of being self-aware and my, what am I thinking? What am I feeling? You know, physically, mentally, emotionally, and do I have some ability to manage that? And then the other part of emotional intelligence is really about social awareness, who am I with, and then relationship management. And that's where it becomes really interesting and super important in the business world. I mean, both sides of it, but really it's like whatever kind of work we do. I mean, even people who are entrepreneurs who work just for themselves, sitting behind a computer or a phone all day long, you know, expressing themselves to the world, we still are interacting with and engaging with other human beings, right? And if we work in an office with other people and we have to collaborate on things and get together and meet and discuss things and brainstorm and a lot of it, our success or lack thereof has to do with our ability to be aware of who we're interacting with and have some sense of being able to manage those relationships effectively. Mm -hmm. And that's where the intelligence part comes in. <laughs> yes. Well, and you know, it's funny. I mean, I know you live down in Silicon Valley area. I was, I was at an event. I, I share about this in the chapter on emotional intelligence in the book. I spoke at an event at Adobe, one of my clients, we're a great technology company based right in San Jose. And I got up to speak and Jeff at the time was leading. He was head of talent at um, Adobe and he introduced me. He's like, Mike's here to talk. I was talking to a group of managers. Mike's here to talk about emotional intelligence. And uh, I've always believed that your IQ gets you your job, but your EQ gets you promoted. That's hmm. what he said. And it was funny because I said, thanks, Jeff. And I stood up and I said, well, what Jeff just said is basically what I'm about to talk about for the next hour, right? Like that was the <laughs> crux of it was like EQ is really important. But the thing is that we're not really, I mean, we do a better job today in the way we educate. I mean, I have a, my wife and I have a 12 year old, nine year old, two girls at our house and they, education is now more focused on emotional and social intelligence and, you know, emotional, social learning, all these things. But those ideas, I mean, I'm 44 people who are my age are definitely even older, the way that we've been educated, you know, generationally was not focused at all on emotional intelligence or awareness, mindfulness, any of this stuff that is so wonderful that we talk about these days. So we were all trained to be smart, to have good ideas, to make good arguments. And like, that's how we did well in school. And then ultimately, as we got into business, that's what made us quote unquote successful in business, but that's not necessarily the case. I think it's so incredible to see this going into the schools and having it expanded so that, you know, kids are really learning what we call the soft skills Yeah, that never were taught before. We didn't learn those things. No. Uh, you know, I had a guest on the show, Susan Kaiser Greenland. I don't know if you know of her, but she did a, a book called Mindful Games and she mm. has this, this wonderful book uh. and these cards that allow people to bring activities to their kids to help them understand how aware or not aware they are of themselves. Yeah. And that's really something that we can carry over into the workplace. And, and, you know, a lot of times, especially in Silicon Valley, 
with a lot of engineers, with a lot of different cultural backgrounds. Yes. There's a lot of resistance to even bringing any emotion or real self into the workplace because they're afraid of how they're going to be received. Yes. Oh, for sure. I mean, and I, you know, I do a lot of work down in Silicon Valley. I work in a lot of other industries in different places around, you know, most, most of my clients or companies are based here in the U S although because they're global companies, I tend, I do travel some around and I go to other places in the world, which I'm always fascinated by. And I learn a lot. And to your point, absolutely. There's a lot of places where some of, you know, it's funny you even mentioned soft skills. You know, I've been doing this work for the last 17 years. When I first started, I would get a lot of sort of condescending comments about, well, Mike, you know, that's all soft skills. That's really soft skills. <laughs> and, and I, you know, I, and I, I would like apologize. Well, I know, I know. And then after a while I got mad and I used to say this and if people would say it to me in that condescending tone, I'd say, listen, soft skills are hard. <laughs> They're really hard. I don't know. I don't know about you, but I struggle with the soft skills. I think we got to pay a little more attention. And no, but, but one of the things though, that I do as a way to access it. Like when, especially if I'm talking to a group of people that I, my sense is either from the research I've done on the front end or just being there, even in the room, I'm there to speak, I'm there to lead a workshop that there's resistance or they're kind of rolling their eyes. Like, why is this important? What is it? I'll often ask just a really simple question. I'll say, okay, think about the best team you've ever been a part of at work, like the best work team, you know, and then I'll say, you know, even they pair up and talk to someone about what was the, what were the qualities of that team that made it such an incredible high-performing, like best team you've ever been a part of. And what's amazing is, you know, people have different things to say, but almost always the conversation after that is some version of, you know, we, we were passionate about what we were doing. We had a, a clear vision. We, we had each other's backs. We, it's all this soft stuff, right? It's mm -hmm. all this, like we trusted each other. We, you know, it's, it's, it's all the cultural sort of hard to define intangible qualities that make teams great. That um, was one of the things, you know, I was an athlete for many years. I played baseball in college and then got a chance to play professionally for a few years before I got injured. And I was always fascinated by that sort of intangible team dynamic. Mm. And so again, I share some of my experience of oftentimes as an athlete, which is sports is so focused on outcome and result. And then I ask people these questions about team and performance. And usually what comes up it's not like, oh, we were all this, we had all the smartest people I'd ever been around in my life. That's not usually what people say. And so what that does, is it kind of gets in the back door to people realize, oh, these soft skills things, they matter. They're actually really important. Mm -hmm. Especially for leadership. Yeah. You know, and another thing that people say, I get the, I get the comments sometimes, Mike, we're not going to, you know, come in and do like a, an offsite or a team. We're not going to do like everyone hold hands and sing Kumbaya, are we? And my response <laughs> is usually, I usually say, no, we're not. Listen, we won't, we're not doing trust falls. And I'll say, no, no, we're not going to sing Kumbaya. We're not going to do trust falls. I said, I tell you what, though, if you show me a team that could hold hands and sing Kumbaya together and not get all weird about it, I tell you what, that'd probably be a fantastic team to be a part of. <laughs> Right. Like if we right. weren't all making jokes and oh, isn't this dumb, but we like, okay, let's do it. We're going to do this so that we bond as a team. You know, I mean, those things that become cliches or become caricatures of these things, there's a reason why they're there. Mm. Right. Like doing a trust fall. If anyone's ever done one, it's actually not easy to do. It's a scary thing. You have to trust another human being to catch you. Right. Now I know we can make fun of it and it's in movies and whatnot, but like you do a few of those with some people, it's like, man, you really have my back. Okay. I appreciate the physical <laughs> representation of like, we trust each other. I will catch you if you fall. So yeah. You know. Yeah. That's why ropes courses work so well. They really do though. I mean the ropes course or even like team building activities that, that involve some kind of physical thing. 
it is amazing what happens because it gets you out of, it gets you in a different part of your brain. It gets you out of the office and in a different environment, mm-hmm. seeing people and right. And on a, a ropes course is scary. It takes some courage. You have to be vulnerable, right? All these things. And so those things can be incredibly powerful. Again, when I'm working with teams and leaders though, I often say to them, look, don't do these things just to do them. Do them with intention. Do them because you think they're going to make a difference. Do them mindful about your team, what's going on, who's mm-hmm. there. It's not a one size fits all because again, even me coming in as a speaker or to facilitate a group, there are times I am the absolute perfect fit for this team, this group, given what's going on. There's times I'm not. Mm-hmm. And I will even say as much as I love my work and I want you know my clients to bring me in, I'll say, you know what? I don't think I'm the right fit for this thing. I know someone who is though, because you guys have this issue going on, or I think this t- person or their personality is really going to resonate with your group. Um, mm-hmm. You know, cause there's a lot of different ways to get to the same result. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting, you know, in some of the training that I've done, we do a lot of one-on-ones where people actually, you know, we'll do a dyad or a triad where people actually sit down and talk to each other. And often it's the first time they've done that, even though they've known this person for so long and to actually make that connection. And I think that we often kind of box ourselves off from our coworkers Yes. Um, really because it's self-protection, right. you know, they're out to get my job, all of that stuff. And we don't realize that that's not helping us. No. I mean, I think you're right. Getting people together, like it sounds like you do where they connect one-on-one as human beings. I mean, it sounds so simple, but it's, it can be a profound experience. Mm. You know, one of, one of my favorite exercises, I, I talk about it in the, the first chapter, the first principle of bring your whole self to work around authenticity. I've been doing this exercise for years. I learned it from some mentors of mine a while back is, you know, I'll do it. Some, my favorite way to do it is if I'm just with a team and it's, the group is small enough, there's 10, 12, maybe up to 15 people. We can all, sometimes even smaller than that, we can do it all together as one group. If it's a bigger workshop and I've got 40, 50 people, I'll put people in the small groups. Or if I'm doing a keynote and there's a couple hundred people in the audience, sometimes I'll just pair people up. But the way that I do the exercise is, you know, setting up the context around the importance of authenticity and, you know, using the iceberg as a metaphor, can we lower the waterline on our iceberg, so to speak, to express and expose a little more of who we are, be vulnerable with each other. Mm. And then what we do is, again, if I have the group and it's just me and them and we're around a table, I'll say, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to go around the table. And again, I say this with small groups or in pairs, I'll go first as a way to model it. And when it's your turn, you'll have about two minutes and you're just going to repeat this phrase. If you really knew me, you'd know this about me. Mm, and I'll say it's more, one. it's more like if I really knew you in this moment. So, right. If not like, you know, when I was three, this happened or I grew up here, it's more, <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not your life story, which can be a really important thing to do let people mm-hmm. tell their full story. But it's like, if I really, how are you feeling? What are you thinking? What's going on down below the waterline on your iceberg, so to speak. And I always start, I don't prepare it. It's just in the moment. Sometimes it's how I'm actually feeling like right there with that group. Like I'm feeling nervous or tense, or it feels like there's a lot of, you know, sometimes there's a lot of tension going on with the group themselves. That's part of why they brought me in. So I will speak mm-hmm. to that if I feel that. A lot of times it's also just like, here's what's going on in my life right now. What I'm, what's, you know, whatever, real, right? Yeah. Vulnerable. And then the next, okay. what happens is I'd go first as a way to kind of create a little bit of safety and, and model it. But then as people start sharing, I mean, you know, it, it's different with every group, but a lot of times tears will show up, emotion will show up, people will share things that's going on that in their lives that they didn't necessarily, people didn't know. And it, it and the whole point of it, it's not to force people. And I always say, look, say whatever you want. There's no right or wrong way. Mm-hmm. My invitation is to step out of your comfort zone a little bit, but you trust yourself and what feels right. But what's amazing is, as people share, 
and they get vulnerable with each other, it's both liberating for them individually. Like, I don't have to hold on to that. But it connects the group in a way because the natural human response to vulnerability is empathy. Mm-hmm. Right? It's that sense of like, and even if we look different, we have different backgrounds, we're different genders, races, ages, different roles. What's amazing is like simultaneously we're all different and unique and we're way more alike than we are different when we start to really get real. And it's that whole sense of, oh, you feel like that? I feel like that. Oh, wow, I didn't know that about, oh, I can relate to that. And I love doing that exercise for so many reasons, but it's, it's simple on, in, on the surface, but can be profound in terms of the experience that people have. It's a beautiful way to bring a team together. It, yeah. You know, because they never walk away the same no. as they were when they came in. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And the other exercise that I love, and this I talk about in the, in the second chapter on utilizing the power of appreciation, it's what I call the appreciation seat. Mm-hmm. Both of these exercises are like sort of core to when I work with groups, I love them. And in the book, I decided I was just going to share, here's exactly step-by-step-by-step by step by step how I do them because- I love that you did that. Well, because I just feel like I've seen this work so many times mm-hmm. and people are often like, hey, I want to do that or how would I do it? And I'm always like, and they're like, I, I don't know if I could do it the way you did. I was like, well, you got to do it in your own way, but just here's what I do. But basically the appreciation exercise is about, you know, I talk about the difference between recognition and appreciation, recognition mm-hmm. being about performance, appreciation being about people. And they're both important, but at work, we tend to focus mostly on recognition, formal or informal, good job, result oriented reaction to mm-hmm. an outcome. Sometimes there's nothing to recognize. Sometimes there's a failure or there's a problem or there's so you know, but there's always something to appreciate. And appreciation is more about, again, the people and our relationships with the people. It doesn't mean it's perfect. It doesn't mean we have no conflict and everyone's personality is easy for us to deal with. But what it does mean is we choose to, as the first book I wrote many years ago is called Focus on the Good Stuff. So we mm-hmm. focus on what we appreciate about people and the way this exercise works. And it's funny, Janet, because almost always people initially have resistance to it. They don't want to do it. It's awkward. It's uncomfortable. But then inevitably, even if there's a ton of resistance, I almost always have to like rein it back in so we don't literally spend like three hours doing it. Because what happens is everyone has a turn on the appreciation seat, I call it. And what it means is, and sometimes often to manage the time, I'll literally use my, the, the timer on my phone. It'll be like two minutes and we'll start with, you know, Janet. Okay, we're all going to tell Janet some things we appreciate about her. And the hardest part of the exercise is being the person receiving the appreciation because usually we get weird and we're like, oh, stop. Oh, no, I'm, you know, and so I have to coach the person like, look, you're just going to sit there and listen to what people say, (laughs) breathe and see if you can actually let it in. And so even though people at first are a little awkward because it is actually a vulnerable thing to do, but we start to say, you know, Janet, I really appreciate. And I, I get a little bit of context. It's like, what do you value about her? What have you learned from her? What do you respect or admire? What do you, you know? What does she do that, what does she bring to the team? What do you, you know, if she were to, if she, if today were her last day, what would you want her to know of the impact she's had on you? I mean, I just kind of set it up in that way. And so people say stuff and what ends up happening is, you know, again, I'll say, look, not everyone's going to have a chance just time-wise to go, but we'll keep going. And, we'll, and people are like, no, I have, and they're like, no, we have to keep, you know, they, I've literally sat with a team and we've spent an hour and 45 minutes doing that when they didn't even want to do the exercise. Mm-hmm. And like I was with an executive leadership team in Silicon Valley a couple of months ago and we, I'd been, I've worked with them before. And sometimes I'm always like, well, maybe we'll mix it up. And I wasn't even planning to do the appreciation seat exercise with them. And towards the end of their meeting, I'd spent a couple of days with them. They're like, we want to do it again. I was like, okay, fine. And one of their team members who's going through a lot personally, wasn't able to be at the meeting. 
and they were really sad he wasn't there. And so one of the people on the team's like, I'm going to record it. She pulled out her phone and she said, okay, everybody let's go around and we'll say what we want to say to him as if he were here. So, and then she, it's like, it'll be a big, long video. It'll be a big data file, but I'll send it. I'll figure out a way to get it to him. And so she did. And again, it's just like, it's simple, but it's profound when we actually hear from other people what they value about us as humans. You know? that is, they must feel pretty amazing when they get done with that. They do. I mean, and it's, this, it's, it's incredible because it really is like, wow. You know, and there's, and there's a physiological aspect to this, right? Like when we express and receive appreciation from each other, two things happen in our brains, right? We get more serotonin, right? Which helps us less stressed, a little happier, but then more oxytocin, which connects us to each other biologically, right? And so it is that feeling, that genuine team bonding experience. Now, again, that does go away. It's a fleeting thing. You have that sort of, ooh, this feels really good. So I often say to leaders in the teams, you have to continue to create practices and ways you interact that are going to elicit that sense, that oxytocin that literally comes, it's chemical in our nervous system that connects us and bonds us with other human beings. That's wonderful. Yeah. Wouldn't it be cool if every meeting started with just a little appreciation? Oh, it would it, change everything. It would. It really would. I mean, that's the thing. You know, the other thing about it is, and I, I think about this all the time, it, just in our lives, like in my marriage, right? I remember things. So Michelle, my wife and I have been together for almost 18 years. And, you know, one of the things that I remember a therapist that we saw early on say to us was like, you, there's no way to over appreciate your partner. You cannot do that. And, and I remember thinking like, oh, that's interesting. And I often say, as when I'm speaking, I joke about it, but I say, look, I've, I've literally never met anyone in my entire life that says to me, you know what, Mike, I'm just too appreciated. It's just too much. <laughs> right? My spouse, my kids, my friends, my coworkers, it's just, it gets on my nerves. I wish they would stop appreciating me, right? Like yeah. nobody says that because nobody actually feels that way. <laughs> you know? No. Yeah. I mean, so it's like, it's, it's almost, in most conflicts, if you think about whether it's personal conflict or even conflict at work, that the root of it is, feeling not appreciated, not mm. seen, not valued, not respected, right? So if we bring that into our relationships at work, right back to the emotional intelligence thing, how do we sort of manage the relationships and navigate the social intelligence of things? Well, if we bring appreciation into our relationships proactively, there's tons of benefit on the other end. Because again, what, when, when there's inevitably going to be a conflict, or I got to give you some feedback, if I've built up some appreciation in our relationship, that relationship now has enough emotional bandwidth to manage that. If there's none there, the relationship can break. One big conflict can break the relationship. Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful buffer. Yes. To be able to give you a little bit more space, you know, because no one is perfect all no. the time. And, you know, so to have that understanding between each other, that can really be humongous. Well, yeah. And you know, Google did a study a few years back that you may have heard of, and some people listening to us may have heard of called Project Aristotle. And what they did was they were trying to solve for the question they were trying to answer was what are the conditions that create high performance for teams, right? And they first started because they were looking, I mean, Google's an amazing company um, in terms of the success they've had. They also, you know, and they, but like every company, they have some teams that perform at a really high level and others that don't. So the first they started looking at their own teams. Okay, the teams inside our company that do well, what do they do different? Or what, what are the you know, components or parameters. And then they realized, look, we got to expand this out if we're really going to figure this out. So they went outside, not just other tech companies, then other industries. And they spent three years studying all this data and metadata from around the world. And what they came back with after three years of studying was five key components to high performance for teams, conditions that are necessary. And the number one condition 
was what they call psychological safety, mm. which is yeah. basically trust at a group level, right? It means I can be myself. I can make a mistake. I can take a risk. I can, you and I can have a di disagreement, even a conflict. I can fail and I'm not going to get kicked out of the group. I'm not going to be reprimanded in a way that means I'm, you know, humiliated or I'm ostracized. And when that psychological safety exists, there's more trust amongst us. We're more willing to take risks. We're more innovative. We're more likely to be successful. All these things, all these positive benefits. But when that psychological safety doesn't exist, and we've all been in relationships and been a part of teams where it's not the case, we have to like have it all together and we can't say the wrong thing and we're really worried we're going to mess up. And you know what I mean? Yeah, like, absolutely. And so again, back to the sort of soft skill stuff. It's like, well, gosh, there's so many soft things that go into creating psychological safety. It's not a intelligence thing like a you know it's not a work ethic thing it's really a relational mindful thing right right well you talk about something in the book that's kind of um that really fascinated me and that was what you call the authenticity continuum yes can you explain how that works and, and <laughs> dig it it's, yeah. it's a big topic but dig in there it is so so <laughs> i look you know because for years i would ask people you know what does it mean to be authentic or what does authenticity mean to you and people would say things like honest and transparent and you know genuine and different words and then i realized gosh you know it's not a black and white thing it's not like i'm either authentic or i'm not or i mean it's so but it's so I, I look at authenticity on a continuum so on one side of the continuum is kind of where we'll put phony or inauthentic and we're usually pretty good at pointing out phoniness or inauthenticity in other people, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's harder to look at it within ourselves. <laughs> but that's the place I always challenge everyone, myself included, to look, okay, where do I find myself being inauthentic? Because if we can acknowledge our own inauthentic or phony tendencies or situations or relationships in which we might be more phony than not, it actually then can put us in a place of choice where we can move more in, in an authentic direction, mm. right? So again, noticing when we're being inauthentic or funny, it's usually not malicious. It's not, you know, sinister, like, oh, I'm going to lie to everyone and manipulate everyone. It's usually, you know, for expedience or we're tired or we're nervous or social norm or we just new don't job. new job. We're just feeling our way through it, right? Mm -hmm. But we got to at least be aware of it. If we're not aware of it, we can't do anything about it. And what happens sometimes, though, when we're aware of our own phony or inauthentic tendencies, instead of owning it, we blame it on other people. People say, well, you know, Mike, I can't really be authentic with my boss or you can't really be authentic around here. You know, they tell me like in there in the environment where they work. And my response often is, look, you're right. I don't work here. I don't know exactly what it's like. And I also say, look, and I know sometimes it can be hard to be authentic, but the issue isn't that we can't be authentic. It's that we're choosing not to be authentic. Hmm. And look, that's okay. Maybe you've decided the safest thing. Like I'm just starting my job. I'm not going to be authentic yet because I'm, I got to feel it out. I don't want them to think I'm crazy. They're going to kick me out. Right. Or whatever, or with my boss or with my client or with this situation, if I, I'm afraid to be completely authentic because I might lose something or ruin. Okay. But just own it like a choice. You're choosing mm -hmm. that. And there's some consequences to that choice, like any other choice. So we move along the continuum halfway down the continuum is where we get to honest. Now, honest is good, right? I mean, most people would agree. Like my mother used to say to me all the time, honesty is the best policy. She was right, right? Honesty is the best policy. Although most of us have learned in our lives, particularly our professional lives, that sometimes being honest can cause a problem, mm -hmm. <laughs> get us into trouble. We put, we put, some of us, especially if we have a big mouth, we just say what we think. We put our foot in our mouth. We offend people. We get branded as like, oh, here he comes, Mr. You know, whatever, <laughs> right? So then we all learn we think, by the way, this is social intelligence, this is relationship management, and it is sort of a twisted version of it. We learn how to massage the truth. 
-hmm. we learn how to be like, okay, I'm not going to be phony. I'm going to be honest, but like mostly honest, Mm -hmm. right? Like appropriately honest, like politically correct, honest, like doesn't get me into trouble. And, and I say to people all the time, look, it makes sense. That's where most of the world operates, particularly professionally. However, it's exhausting. Because we constantly, it's hard, work. it's hard work. We have to constantly, okay, how honest can I be here and here and with this person in this meeting, in this situation? And it's like, we're constantly sort of, you know, switching, if you will. Where we have real freedom and power is on the other side of honesty. Now, this takes courage to get to authenticity, but it's incredibly liberating and empowering if we can get there. Yes, it's about being honest, but it's about removing something from our honesty and then adding something to our honesty. Mm-hmm. What we have to remove is our self righteousness. Self righteousness meaning, I'm right, like with a capital R. The way I often <laughs> phrase this when I'm speaking to groups, I say, how many of you like me have a lot of opinions? And of course, everybody raises their hand. And then I say, and how many of you like me think your opinions are right? And most people laugh and also raise their hands. And I say, yep, that's what we call self-righteous. Now, there's nothing wrong with our opinions, right? And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be passionate or convicted or be willing to speak up, but there's a difference between conviction and self-righteousness. Conviction is, I believe something to be true, I'm passionate about it. I'm willing to speak up about it. Even if I'm a little nervous, I might even be willing to challenge you and have a debate about it. But I have enough humility and enough self-awareness to realize I might be wrong. Or at the very least, I can acknowledge there might be another way to see this thing. Self-righteous is I'm right. You're wrong. Shut up. (laughs) Right? And it's it's the world we're living in right now in the most intense way I've ever experienced it or seen it. Right? It's like, it's my team, your team, us, them my idea, right? I'm literally going to change the channel to where people, I agree with the people on that channel, not on the other channel. You know what I mean? It's Mm -hmm. like, wow. But we don't just do it when we're talking about politics and in the news. Like we do it. I see it in companies all the time. It's the marketing team against the sales team. Oh my gosh. Yes. Right. It's the engineering team and the product team against, you know, this other group or whatever the legal, I mean, it's like, wow, it's the San Francisco office and the New York office. It's the, you know, I mean, wow. It's the us and them that we do. Mm-hmm. And, and we don't usually have the courage, especially here in where you and I live in California and lots of places here in the U.S. where we get we don't get in each other's face necessarily and say, I think you're wrong. And you say, no, I think you're wrong. And we have it out. No, we go, OK, great. And then we leave and go, she's wrong. Right. And I find <laughs> yeah. someone else who go, yeah, I know she's right. In fact, she's an idiot. Let's go to lunch and talk about her. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's what we do. Right. That's but that's what we do, because it's easier for you and I to go to lunch and talk about our boss who's wrong or mm. bad or some other person that we work with. So anyway, we got to remove the self-righteousness. Now, that's not easy. That takes an enormous amount of mindfulness, awareness, emotional intelligence, because the problem is when you and I are being self-righteous, we don't actually think we're being self-righteous. No, of course not. We're right, right? We're just right. That's just how it is, right? So we got to remove that. It's an ongoing process. And then the thing we have to add to the honesty is vulnerability, right? Vulnerability. And the definition I love for vulnerability is the one from Dr. Brene Brown, right? She says vulnerability is emotional exposure, risk, and uncertainty. Hmm. Emotional exposure, risk, and uncertainty. Think about, think about, can you think of anything meaningful or important that you've ever accomplished or experienced in your life, personally or professionally, that did not involve emotional exposure, risk, or uncertainty? Often, right? I mean, not if it matters, not if it really means something. Often it involves all three of those things. Hmm. We've now decided, you know, vulnerability is bad, we need to protect ourselves. We need to have our armor on or our shield up to make sure people don't mess with us. And so again, vulnerability takes a lot of courage because we have a lot of training and we have experience. We've all had negative experiences of being vulnerable and having it be bad and painful and hurtful, right? We've lost friends. We've, 
gotten our hearts broken. We've gotten our feelings hurt. We've gotten taken advantage of. We've had things happen, real things that we remember, right? We've gotten passed over on opportunities or promotions at work or different things. So it sometimes is counterintuitive, but so that's that whole continuum. So if we can hang out over in authenticity, it's honesty. I call this the authenticity equation, honesty minus self-righteousness plus vulnerability. Mm. That's authenticity. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate you asking. I know it was a long answer to your simple question, but yeah, that was a very good know, answer. I think I think it really is much more complicated than we think it is. Yes, yes, you know? that's for sure. It's not it's not a black and white thing. People think, oh, it's Never. you know, it's, it's it, but there's a lot of depth and nuance to it. And the reality is, authenticity is an in the moment phenomenon. It's a practice. Look, it's like mindfulness, right? It's like, am I a mindful person? Well, maybe, maybe not. But am I being mindful right now? Am I an authentic person? Well, yeah, sure. Am I actually being authentic right in this moment? Because that's where authenticity happens. It doesn't happen in the past or in the future. It happens right now. And the truth is, I can be absolutely authentic with you in one moment and completely full of it in the next moment, right? So I have to be aware. What am I doing? What am I saying? How am I showing up? What's real? What's true right now? My, my counselor, Eleanor, who I love and have worked with the last, last six years, says to me all the time, Mike, the truth can't be rehearsed. Mm. I like that. Yeah. I like that. So let's talk about how we actually enable that on a day-to-day basis. If we want to really be checking in with ourselves and going, okay, where am I on the continuum right now? How do we check in with that? How does that work? Well, look, it's it, honestly, there, there's an aspect of it and it so fits with your show. It's, it's a mindfulness practice. I mean, one way for me, you know, one of the things that I do, like before I go out to speak or before I go into a meeting, I literally put my hand on my heart sometimes both of them, close my eyes, take a breath to kind of ground and center myself, right? There's physiological evidence. I was reading about this about a year ago that just doing that's actually, it's a self-compassion practice, Mm -hmm. right? That has this kind of get more in our heart and oh, brings me more centered in the moment. But also just to ask myself, like, where am I at? How am I feeling? What's true for me right in this moment? So, because the thing about authenticity has to start with us. I can't be authentic with you if I don't really know where I'm at. Mm-hmm. Right. So then that that's a practice. And then starting to have conversations again on a day to day basis in the work that we do. Right. I talked about that exercise. If you really knew me and sort of lowering the waterline, what I'll often say to people after we do that exercise and we often it'll be a whole emotional experience and a team bonding thing. I'll say to them, look, I'm not necessarily advocating that you then, you know, tomorrow in your next customer meeting or, you know, you go meet with senior leadership and you start it off by going, Hey everybody, if you really knew me, like out of context, <laughs> that might freak people out. That would right. be weird. Right. Mm. But you could still walk into that meeting and in your own mind and in your own heart, know I'm going to lower the waterline of my iceberg a little bit here. I'm going to be even more available. I'm going to share what's really true for me mm. in the moment, you know, and sometimes it's amazing. Like there's a story that I share in the book about being in a meeting with my publisher a number of years ago, after my first book came out, again, I, it was called Focus on the Good Stuff. I wrote it back, came out in 2007. I was in a meeting in 2008 with my publisher at the time. It was a company called, publishing company called Josie Bass. It's in San Francisco, imprint of a larger company called Wiley in New York. And I was there to pitch an idea for my, what I was hoping was going to be my second book on authenticity. And what I didn't know was that the president of Josie Bass, a woman named Deborah, and her boss from Wiley had Deborah was in the office, was coming to the meeting, and her boss flew in from New York from the Wiley office for the meeting. I didn't know that until I got there. Alan, my editor on my first book, was like, hey, we got to wait for a few minutes before the meeting starts because Deborah's coming to the meeting and, and her boss flew in. And I was like, oh, 
really. I was simultaneously excited, like, wow, they're really interested. And then I was, of course, terrified, like, and mad at Alan, like, why didn't you tell me? <laughs> so they come in the room and they sit down and they're like, Mike, so tell us about the book. So I go into my little pitch and, you know, it was going okay. But normally meetings like that, maybe you start, you're pretty anxious and then the, it goes away. It wasn't happening. I was mm. more anxious and more anxious. And I was like, and I could feel myself getting more anxious as I was going. And a few minutes in, I finally just stopped and I said, hey, Deborah, um, I know I mentioned this a few minutes ago when you came in the room. It's really an honor to meet you. And I said to her boss, I said, and you flew all the way in from New York for the meeting. I said, but I noticed that I'm feeling really nervous and I'm trying hard to impress you. I said, can I stop doing that now and just be myself? <laughs> and literally as it was coming out of my mouth, the voice in my head was screaming at me like, don't say that out loud. What you, what's wrong with you? What are you, an idiot? Stop. You know, it was like, but I did. And, and after a very awkward pause, and there was very awkward pause, I could see the looks on everyone's faces. Like, did he really just say that out loud? What was interesting was Deborah laughed. So did her boss. So did everyone else around the table. So did I. And more than laugh, it was like, I took a breath. Mm. And I said, okay, look, here's what I know about authenticity. It's important, but it's hard. And so we, I said, I want to write a book about that. And we just started having a conversation as opposed to me pitching. And, you know, the end of the meeting went well. They decided they wanted to publish the book. So I was excited about that. But I learned something really important that day and then learned a lot since then. The thing I learned that day was like, hey, sometimes it's important, even if you want to impress people, <laughs> to just be real, tell the truth. Even mm -hmm. if it's a little messy and it might not go well, it's like, it did go well for me in that situation. And it helped. If I had stayed on the track I was going, I don't think it would have gone well because I would have been so busy performing and trying to impress them, you know, but the thing not I'm, being authentic, not being authentic. Right. And mm -hmm. I was pitching a book on authenticity, ironically called <laughs> the books, ironically called be yourself. Everyone else has already taken. So it really wasn't a shtick. I mean, it yeah. was truth, but it was funny in hindsight. But the thing I've learned since then is I've studied authenticity is like, it is hard. So back to your question of what can mm -hmm. we do to bring it into practice? It's like, it's hard. Like, you know, again, like I said, soft skills are hard. Sometimes you'll mess it up. Sometimes you won't realize until after the meeting or after the interaction, wow, that didn't go so well, or that was inauthentic or whatever. And you know what? You can go back and say to the person, you know what? Remember that meeting we had yesterday? I'm sorry. I was like checked out or doing something else or trying to whatever. I was trying to get, you know, you to agree with me or whatever. I mean, like people will forgive us again, psychological safety, right? It doesn't mm -hmm. mean perfect. It means like we're human. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, to go back to psychological safety, as long as we are willing to allow that to yes. happen, then it totally changes the environment. You know, and we see that with the Me Too movement that, you know, that all of these women, 26 women or whatever, have accused a single person of right. doing this, but they didn't feel safe to let anybody know. Totally. Well, look, and I mean, look, and, and when you think about that, and I think there's the Me Too movement is so important on so many levels. And I think, you know, for you as a woman, I'm sure your, your perspective on it and what you experienced in your life and seen, I mean, I know for me as a man, and I thought, I mean, I was raised by a single mom with an older sister, married to Michelle, we have two daughters, like, my life has been very much focused and surrounded by females and women and influence in my life. And I have been just completely floored, like, has this all been going on? And I just had no idea about it. If I'm not paying attention, it's what, like, what, you know, mm -hmm. and I think there's a lot of men who are having that reaction of like, wow. And it, culturally it became this like cultural moment where women started to feel safer to share their stories. Like, yes, this has happened to me. I didn't think it was either safe to share or people were that interested or that it mattered or all these different reasons. And as it relates, I mean, and as it relates to our working lives and on a day-to-day -day basis, I mean, one of the things that I've been humbled by in this is like, 
what it takes for me to feel safe as an individual based on my personality, my background, my gender and other things is different than what it might take for you to feel safe. Yes. And so we need to have a collective conversation on what safety really means and what it looks like. Mm-hmm. And at some level, not, and not, it doesn't mean everyone has to walk on eggshells and like we can't make jokes and do things because we're all going to get in trouble. Like that's the sort of superficial reaction to it. And the fear, like a, a lot of men right now who are not understanding what to do, what to say, what it means, if they could get a little more real about it and say, wow, this is scary. This is different. This is new. I didn't know this. I don't want to cause harm. I don't want to create any pain. Like it's more about listening. And similarly, I think again, and not even on gender lines, but just for teams and groups of people who work together, like, do we have real, honest, authentic conversations about how we feel, what works, what doesn't work for us? Because a lot of times what happens is, even if it's not related to sexual harassment or sexual assault, there are times that people do things. I mean, I know this growing up, even as a young boy and as a young man, there were times like I was always a really sensitive kid. And one of the things that boys do with each other is like, and men do this, we just make fun of each other ruthlessly and in mean ways, you know, Mm -hmm. about each other's bodies and appearance and about all kinds of stuff that like, we we would never, most men would never necessarily do that to a female in that kind, in that way, in that context. And I remember the few times I would say something to my friends, like, Hey man, that hurt my feelings. Like then they would pounce on me for like being soft and wimpy and what, and I was like, Oh God, this is not safe at all. Right. Yeah. But again, yeah. it's like, but that stuff didn't work for me and still doesn't to this mm-hmm. day. Like, I don't have male friends in my life who make fun of me ruthlessly like that because I'm just like, I don't want to be your friend. Like, I'm a grown up now. I don't have to put up with that. I'm not doing that. Thank you very much. I'm going to go somewhere else. But again, I think we have to be willing to speak up. And for a lot of reasons, whether it's because of our gender or our race or our background or our age or other things, if we don't feel safe to speak up, then it becomes more challenging. And then for those of us who find ourselves in positions of leadership, authority, privilege, whatever that may look like. It's really important that we pay attention and that we proactively are asking questions and being curious about the safety of what's going on for everybody. Again, this is not about being politically correct. This is not about, it's really about if you want to create the most conducive environment for people to not only feel safe, but to be productive and to really thrive, which again, in most business environments, that's what we want. We got to pay attention to this stuff. And that's, that's really huge. And, and this is my last question for okay. you. But I really think that, you know, where you just went with that is, is so spot on that many leaders think all their job is, is to tell everybody what to do yeah. and then yell at them when they don't do it. <laughs> and they don't take any interest in, you know, here's Bill. What, what does Bill want to do with his life? What are his passions? Where does he want to go? So let's kind of finish with that. How can we make that a better thing? Well, you're absolutely right. You know, and, and I was looking at some research from Glassdoor.com, which is a company that's right here in Marin County where I live, you know, and Glassdoor is a great site where people can go and post honestly, anonymously how they feel about working wherever they work. And, you know, sometimes it can be a little challenging, right? For a lot of reasons for businesses and companies, it's like, you know, it's sort of like Yelp and other things like, Hey, Mm. there's a lot of angry people that get on there. That said, I did find some interesting research that, that Glassdoor, in addition to their site, they, they, they're really looking at the sort of state of the working world and what people are doing and wanting. And here's what they found was that 52% of people in their study said that they would have stayed longer at the company they were at if they felt more appreciated, mm-hmm. particularly by their direct manager boss, the person they report to. 81% of people said they were more motivated 
when their manager, their direct supervisor appreciated them versus 37% said they were more motivated when their manager or their supervisor was hard on them or they somehow feared losing their job. So again, to your point, what that reminds anyone who manages people or who is in a leadership position in a company is like the relationships matter, you know? And, and I also think as you were talking, something popped into my head about, I saw Oprah Winfrey speak a few years ago and she said this really simple but profound thing. She said, you know, I've interviewed thousands and thousands of people in my career. I've interviewed everybody, right? Presidents, prime ministers, celebrities, children, criminals, like you name the type of person. I've interviewed them. She said, after all my years in television, all these interviews, she said, you know, that just about every single person I've interviewed asks me some version of the same question when the interview's over. She said, the camera shuts off, the interview's over, they lean over and they say, how'd I do? Or was that okay? Some version of how'd I do? Was that okay? And she said, you know, early in my career, I used to be really confused by this question because I'd be sitting across from someone who's very successful and accomplished and I'd be wondering, are they really that insecure? Like, do they really need my validation? What is that? Why are they asking me how they did? And she said, then I realized something. They're not actually asking me how they did. She said, you know what they're really asking me? Did you see me? Mm -hmm. Did you hear me? Did what I say matter to you? And she said, and I agree with her, everybody's asking those questions all the time. Doesn't matter what they look like. Doesn't matter where they're from. Doesn't matter how confident they may seem. It's not that necessarily we're overly insecure, although sometimes we may feel that way, but it's we want to be seen, we want to be heard, and we want to know that not just what we do, not just what we say, but who we are as a person matters. And that to me is really what leadership, great leadership looks like and is about. And that's what bringing your whole self to work is about and creating that kind of environment where people really feel seen and heard and valued for the human being that they are, not just the job that they do. Hmm. Wouldn't it be wonderful if all our bosses were like that? Yeah. Amen to that. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a beautiful world. <laughs> yes, for sure. For sure. Well, thank you so much, Mike. I, I truly enjoyed the book and there are a lot of really good nuggets in there that people can use. Uh, why don't you tell them how they can find the book and you? Great. Well, the book is available wherever you like to get books. Um, and the best place to get it, though, is the same place you can find out about me is on my website. If you go to mike-robbins.com forward slash work, that page has information all about the book. You can order it there. You can even download the introduction for free. But what's really cool is for people who get the book, Janet, I actually recorded three hour-long audio programs, one for entrepreneurs, business owners, one for managers and leaders, and one for people who are in, in individual contributor roles. So I tried to take the information that's in the book and also sort of customize it to those different types of jobs and work that people do. So it's mike-robbins.com forward slash work. That's great. Thank you so much, Mike. I really enjoyed this. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on your podcast. <laughs>